Here are the highlights from the latest episode of Free Talk Live. Visit freetalklive.com for the full episode. Here with you, it's Ian. And Jay Noon. I did just get back from the Barbie movie with uh, Bonnie and I went to see it. She got all dressed up, and, or should I say dolled up, and she looked very nice. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I have to say it was uh, a lot of fun. I mean, having been your typical boy growing up, I was certainly not playing with Barbies. I didn't care for Barbies at all. I don't know much about the history. don't know much about the, the doll but I really enjoyed the uh, the Barbie movie. And if you can look past the, the – they'd beat you over the head with messages about the patriarchy. I mean, it definitely does have a, a political was it woke? Uh, message. I mean, I think you could definitely say it was it was woke. Okay. Um, but it was a lot of fun, and it was very, very entertaining. So if you know what you're getting into, I think uh, you're going to have a good time with it. Just, you know, be prepared for the, the political messaging of it. If you can look past it, I think you'll enjoy it. So that happened uh, today, and then, again, as I said, I wanted to get into this story here about the decriminalization of hard drugs. We've seen over the decades a lot of work being put into just simple decriminalization of the soft stuff, specifically cannabis. There hasn't really been much else. We've seen a few towns or cities here and there uh, decriminalizing magic mushrooms or psychedelic uh, mushrooms. And they've had great success with that, from what I've seen in places like Denver, um, I think Oakland, Santa Cruz. There's even a couple of Massachusetts towns that did mushroom decriminalization. I don't know if you're aware of that. Yeah, I okay. heard about that. Yep. Yep. So, uh, and that's been very, very successful. They've those uh, those efforts have been led by, in many cases, military veterans who've come in in front of uh, city councils and they've testified and said, you know, the their PTSD has been cured by the use of magic mushrooms. I mean, there's just some amazing stories out there. And, of course, we've talked about the studies that have been done on PTSD and, you know, serious uh, depression, anxiety, things like this that people have been suffering and that they actually, when they take a dose of psychedelic mushrooms under a therapeutic environment, they can actually defeat these problems. I know right? three couples that were having really rough relationship issues. And uh, they did um, guided, essentially, mushroom trips mm. or mushroom experience, psychedelic experience uh, with uh, not someone, someone not who isn't actually a shaman, but is very, like, in that type of, you know, shaman, whatever. I don't even know what you call it. But she yeah. was, she's like a guided, uh, you know, mushroom. She's you know, had her training. Yeah, yeah. That. She's yeah. been to Peru and done all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, uh, and, and those couples uh, ha- uh, saw... Uh, two of them at Porkfest uh, mm-hmm. this year, and they were still together. Uh, they're happy. They're okay. together. They're like, you know, um, I actually uh, have recommended some um, uh, <laughs> this therapy to some friends of mine um, who are very, very right leaning conservative, and mm. they're like, oh, I'm not going to do that. And then, um, uh, and then another friend of mine who's a, a farmer down in Massachusetts, I recommended this to him and his wife uh, a couple years ago. They, they were having some issues and. Uh, the wife wants to do it. The husband's not mm-hmm. convinced yet. Uh, we got to work on him a little bit more. But uh, yeah, there's, uh, um, you know, the one thing I got to say about mushrooms, like people who do mushrooms, um, you know, it's uh, it shouldn't even like mushrooms should not be classified like in the same thing as you know like these heroin dr- like heroin whatever. like yeah. like people who do heroin are basically a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're 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 just a negative drain. Uh, the people who, uh, who 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 do mushrooms, 
Um, there, uh, I, I know a whole bunch of people that, you know, do mushrooms recreationally. Sure. Uh, and they're fine. They're productive. They yep. work, you know, um, and uh, some of them even do uh, micro dosing, which is where they take a very small amount of psilocybin, which is the yep. active ingredient in magic mushrooms. They take a very small amount of it, perhaps before a, a work day. Yep. And they, it's not enough to have a psychedelic experience, but it is enough to shift them in a, in a direction that they feel makes them more productive or something like that. There's yeah. a lot of people in like the tech industry, apparently, that are into this. So, you know how, like, uh, so I have cows. So people are like, mm-hmm. oh, can I come on? They look, like mushrooms, don't look, they? Look through your cow manure. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you, uh, right now, the, out in the forest, like all around my property, I've never mm-hmm. seen so many mushrooms. There are a lot. Well, it's a lot of, been a lot We've of rain. we a lot of rain. Yeah. And, and uh I only my pigs aren't on the forest right now. I got three little piglets. They're just in kind of a small pen. But when I had pigs uh, last couple of years, um, and I let them onto a, a new part of forest, and there's like a whole bunch of mushrooms. First thing all the pigs are doing is going after those mushrooms. Mm. They're just eating all every mushroom that they find. They just makes eat them. you wonder, and uh, and they don't <laughs> die. And uh, and and actually, pigs and humans are um, you know very. Um, well, pigs have a really tough digestive system, but mm. pigs and humans are super similar, mm-hmm. you know, with the way their organs are and, uh, you know, everything's aligned. In fact, when you when you butcher a pig and you're, you know, taking the guts out, all, mm-hmm. all, all, all of those guts are sort of in the same setup, very really? similar to what humans are. It's a, it's a mono gut system. And my shaman friend who, um, uh, you know, uh, talks about this mushroom stuff and like plant medicine is what she refers to mm-hmm. it or, or, or fungi medicine. Um you know, uh, there's a big difference between, you know, some college kid, you know, looking to party yeah. and some guy looking to heal himself Absolutely, uh, using it. So when your intention is healing mm-hmm. and, and, and that's what you want to do and you're, you're not and you do this, you know, like at, with an appointment with somebody guiding you, um, there's like it, it isn't like you just, you know, order some mushrooms somewhere or go find them, some buy them from some guy in a black alley and just go home and eat them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's more like uh, you're doing it with. You know, in a in a in a specific environment, right? Uh, with a specific individual who's trained in this, uh, as as a a, a spirit guide, uh, essentially, or or a guide. I don't know if spirit guide is the right word, but um, and I have I know a lot of people who have done this, and nobody has negative commentary about it. Everybody's mm-hmm. even oh, some people told me that th- their experience was sort of like scary. Yep. Uh, at, it, while it was happening because mm-hmm. they've had like these demons There's dark things and, in there and like uh and like uh, uh one girl was you know some really horrible stuff happened to her as a young i don't mm-hmm. know how old she was I'm, and i'm not going to say on, on air what happened to sure. her but um, whatever it was you're going to peel back that brick wall or whatever that you built up over time yep. and it's going to force you to look at it and, and that's what the dark you know scary stuff is she was essentially abused as a as a you know as a child as you know mm-hmm. and a young teenager and had no memory of this oh wow and basically didn't even know it. but she, there was always just she was just very like emotionally um unstable. it was affecting her yeah oh yeah. yeah but she didn't know what was affecting her it was mm-hmm. a problem because she had went through this traumatizing abuse and and her mind had blocked it out but the symptoms of the abuse were still there and she, i think she did this a couple uh th- maybe three years ago now mm-hmm. and like she's really good 
Uh, and she did two of these mushroom experiences, and she's like, I'm good. I don't need any more. I'm cool. You're done. Uh, you know, yep, all you set. Know, I'm, I'm happy with life. It isn't like... And, and, and mushrooms aren't addictive. Like, who's right. addicted to magic mushrooms, you know? Um, Maybe there's somebody out there, but I mean, there's, some, there's certain addictive personalities that yeah. just want to get high or whatever, but I agree with you. It's, um, I don't know what the terminology is for that. I, I don't think mushrooms have the effect where you build a tolerance to them, which is a different, it kind of sets them apart from other drugs, as I understand it. Um, you know, meaning that if you were to take marijuana or whatever or alcohol you're going to build up a tolerance you're going to need more of it to get to the same results and i don't think that that's true with mushrooms so you would think that that would result in more people being addicted to them but it doesn't seem to have like you said that doesn't seem to have that effect on people it does seem to have the effect of you're you're having some sort of a permanent change or at least semi-permanent if you want it uh, in your mind, and you take your lessons back. You remember, hopefully, what it was that you were intending to uh, to remember from that from that journey, and it sticks with you. And it's an important experience, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, it wasn't mushrooms per se, but I think it was Steve Jobs, who was one of the co-founders of Apple Computers, who ranked his uh, trip on LSD, or maybe trips on LSD, which is another psychedelic drug, on, I think it was the top three experiences of his life, top three most important uh, experiences of his life. So in a lot of cases, people will have a very similar experience with uh, with magic mushrooms, and they can put it down and never come back to it. And, and another thing happens with, uh, you know, like, like for, for example, like alcohol, people have withdrawals if they don't get alcohol. Sure. Uh Cigarettes, people have major withdrawals. Uh, yes. Coffee, people have yep, major withdrawals. These are withdrawals. addictive drugs, right? And um, you know, even like, uh, but like, you know, I don't really like. I I know a bunch of people who use cannabis, and mm-hmm. sometimes, and, and a lot of these people will go weeks or a month or two months sometimes, or they just they're too busy. I don't have time to do it. You know, mm-hmm. some say, and it's it's not like they're you know scratching their neck, being like, oh man, I need to get some. <laughs> you know, it, it, like, but like these things like heroin and. You know, opiates and like uh, cocaine and like um, uh, <laughs> caffeine, <laughs> you know, nicotine. Well, I, I, maybe nicotine. I'm not sure if it's the other chemicals in the um, you know, in the cigarettes, but uh, it's nicotine. I mean, it may be the other chemicals as well, but nicotine is an addictive chemical. I did the uh, roll your own cigarette thing for like a summer and I was smoking like one cigarette a day and I could see what the addiction was. Like I could see why people got addicted okay. to it. It definitely wasn't something I wanted to uh, to yep. continue on with, uh, but I could see it. Like it didn't it didn't hook me or anything at, at that level. I wasn't powerless to it or anything like that. But I could see why some people would have. But when you take coffee it. away from people, mm-hmm. they get they irritable. Can, yeah. I, I I have a, a relative who is extremely miserable without his coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and same thing with cigarettes, and the same thing with. Um, you know, the opiates, like people who do heroin, from what I understand, will literally die from the overdose. From the Atlantic's Jim Hinch, he writes, Three years ago, while the nation's attention was on the 2020 presidential election, voters in Oregon took a dramatic step back from America's long-running war on drugs. By a 17-point margin, Oregonians approved ballot measure 110, which eliminated criminal penalties for possessing small amounts of any drug, including cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine. When the policy went into effect early the next year, it lifted the fear of prosecution from the state's drug users and launched Oregon onto an experiment 
to determine whether a long-sought goal of the drug policy reform movement, decriminalization, could help solve America's drug problems. And after all, this is what we've been saying forever here on Free Talk Live as one of the few voices, I think, in mainstream media, if you want to call us that. You know, we're on broadcast radio uh, that actually advocates for ending the insane war on drugs. Now, I think most libertarians, given the opportunity, if there was a button to press that just eliminated the war on drugs, all of a sudden the cops are no longer arresting people for possession, growing, selling, etc. I think that, you know, we would press that button in an instant because we see the destruction of the war on drugs. We see certainly that there are people who are addicted to drugs today regardless of whether there's a war on it or not, right? Most of the most of the video you see from uh, these skid rows all around the country, I think you've mentioned Philadelphia. Yeah, Kensington um, Street, Philadelphia, the yep. They, a lot of these cities, big cities, have these areas where there's a bunch of dope addicts, you know, living in tents uh, and just stumbling around the streets and hanging over. It's such a, they call it nodding out, I think, uh, for the heroin users. Uh, maybe it's fentanyl. I don't know what it is, but it's really uh, it's really horrible to to look at where these these people are just they're still standing, but they're completely bent like all the way down. Yep. And it's really weird. I actually saw somebody in Keene that was uh, not they weren't standing up, but they were just kind of sitting up in front of the library today and just hanging down like that person is on something. So when you and, opened the show, you mentioned uh, this has happened in Portugal. I wonder how decriminalization. Easy, right. I wonder how easy it is to get an EBT card or to get on some form of government assistance and just get free money in Portugal. Because it is Europe. I don't know. Because the big problem here in America is, um, so all, all the things we're talking. So he, here's the problem uh, with um, the <clears throat> sort of drugs in general is is it's is it's being magnified and made so much worse by the fact that. In America, in American cities, it's so easy to get on welfare. Mm. So I have asked uh, emergency medical technicians, technicians, these are the guys that ride around ambulances and respond. Um, I've, I've asked them to, uh, you know, uh, how many of the, the people who you give Narcam to or overdose from heroin mm-hmm. are on welfare? Because they and go through their wallet or their pockets or whatever, right? So the guy from Springfield, Massachusetts that I know, uh, and I talked to talked to actually three of these guys from Springfield because they're guys that used, one of them used to be on a fire department and mm-hmm. uh, just guys I know yeah. from you know you lived I, you grew up in that area. right and uh, they're they're EMTs and they all work in Springfield these guys another guy works in Wilbraham I talked to and then I another one I talked to in Manchester they mm-hmm. all told Manchester New Hampshire all told me the same thing if the uh, guy who's either you know who, who if the over if the o- guy who overdosed has a um, guy or girl hasn't had his pockets cleaned out by his buddies because right. usually that's what what happens is they, they pass have, out they get robbed they just get robbed yeah. their their wallet's gone yeah um but you know you go look around and the wallet's on the ground and you know the id's mm-hmm. in it and any cash is missing and the ebt card is there because i guess the ebt card has your id on it or has a picture on a it. pin number or something or, or something yeah. I, I so you just can't take someone's ebt right. card and use it you have yeah. to like you it's know, like a debit card, I think. I've never used this thing, but and so, anyways, but basically, it was yes. Um, all the all the people who haven't had their pockets cleaned out have an EBT card. There's a difference between drug use and drug abuse, and to put this into perspective for people out there, 
There's a difference between somebody who abuses alcohol and somebody who just has a couple of beers at the end of the night. Sure. For example, uh, there was a paving company I did a lot of work for Mm -hmm. uh, in the past, and uh, there was uh, several guys on that paving crew. Uh, So I was on the side of an interstate fixing fixing a paver because they were paving paving this interstate road (laughs) and i walk over to the truck the dump truck and i open up the passenger side door to talk to the to talk to the guy who i'm working for basically because that's where he was last time i saw him Mm -hmm. and that the man who i was looking to talk to was not in the truck uh but the guy that was driving the truck had a needle in his arm oh boy and he was booting up and uh, and I kind of knew this guy a little bit. I I knew that mm-hmm. this was his deal, and mm-hmm. and I'm like, hey, where's the boss? And he's like, um, uh, give me a minute, oh, you know. God. So then he comes out of the truck, and he and he help, and I was looking. For, what I needed was someone to like help me do this like repair yeah. job. I couldn't do it by myself. So he comes over and he helps me. And uh, he's, high on heroin, totally. Wow. Okay. And 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 he was like, he was stellar. I, I am dead serious. This okay. guy, like I, when I worked with him several times. Wow. Yeah. Um, and he, um, functional addict. Totally. Basically. Huh. Totally. Amazing. He drives a, you know, a triaxle dump truck, you know, that's got a gross vehicle weight of 74,000 pounds with a big old trailer behind it with that's all gets all loaded up with equipment to go, you know, do these jobs. This is a mythical creature you're talking about here. I think they're more common than people believe, but you know, typically when you hear about heroin junkies, you hear about people who are completely useless. They're laying around the house all the time. They're not getting anything done. The house is filthy. I mean, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you're saying this guy was actually a productive person. He's a super good guy to work with. Amazing. Really good. Um, could follow instructions really well. And, and he was a smart, mm-hmm. skilled, ambitious guy. Mm. And most of his ambition is doing the drug. Yeah. Um, he was basically, you know, sleeping in a tent. Mm. Um, but he wasn't willing to rob people to get his money. To no, do he's it. a hard worker. He works mm-hmm. seven days a week. Uh, and so, and then there was another guy on the job site. He only worked till about two in the afternoon and they would send him home because he was a drinker. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And he was, you know, 62. Couldn't stop him 60, from sneaking beers in, that kind of thing. He's just, yeah. I, I'm going drinking. I'm not working. You, mm-hmm. you know, you got me till two. And wow. basically the deal was, I'm starting to open up beers if you don't want me on your job site. <laughs> they just literally I knew plenty of guys home. who were just drinking on the job. Uh, so you couldn't get away with drinking on this particular okay. job. There was no way to do that. Yeah. So the kid that had to, the kid, he wasn't a kid. He was 30, a few years younger than me. Mm-hmm. But the kid who had a needle in his arm. The first, So that was like the first time I ever really saw somebody i knew like do that you know kind of like i knew he did it um i didn't know how he did it but i knew he did it uh but he was like um what i want to say here he oh so the story was that he would lose his cdl if he ever had if they ever found um thc in his urine Mm -hmm. and so he he he, uh which stays around a long time if you use cannabis regularly it's going to sit with you for 30 plus days or whatever as i I understand it but a lot of these harder drugs don't stick around that long well even they're not so i guess they're not screening for it but he's Mm -hmm. like oh i take a you know he goes we got to do random whiz quizzes all the time this doesn't Mm -hmm. show up 
State leaders have acknowledged faults with the policy's implementation and enforcement measures, and Oregon's drug problems have not improved. Last year, the state experienced one of the sharpest rises in overdose deaths in the country and had one of the highest percentages of adults with substance abuse or substance they claim use disorder. During one two-week period last month, three children under the age of four overdosed in Portland after ingesting fentanyl. For decades, drug policy in America centered on using law enforcement to target people who sold, possessed, or used drugs, an approach long supported by both Democratic and Republican politicians. Only in recent years, amid an epidemic of opioid overdose, overdoses and national reconsideration of racial inequalities in the criminal justice system, has the drug policy status quo begun to break down as a coalition of health workers, criminal justice reform advocates, and drug user activists have lobbied for a more compassionate and nuanced response. The new approach emphasizes reducing overdose, stopping the spread of infectious diseases, and providing drug users with the resources they need, counseling, housing, and transportation to stabilize their lives and gain control over their drug use. At least, that's the supposed plan. Oregon's Measure 110 was viewed as an opportunity to prove that activists' most groundbreaking idea, sharply reducing the role of law enforcement in the government's response to drugs, could work. The measure also earmarked hundreds of millions of dollars in cannabis tax revenue for building a statewide treatment network that advocates promised would do what police and prosecutors couldn't, help drug users stop or reduce their drug use and become healthy, engaged members of their communities. The so day- those community out well, I got a couple of commentaries here. Sure. So first off, what the article is basically saying, uh, so I make sure I comprehended it correctly, is that the drug problem has increased. That's the claim. Right. So there's some statistics coming up. And I believe that's because of, you know, the direct welfare payment payments that these guys are getting Mm -hmm. uh, these these drug addicts. Uh, So when you have someone who is like working for their drugs, like these, you know, roofers, contractors, guys like that, uh, that, you know, are doing that kind of stuff uh, they're you know, essentially best I can tell, like maintaining, they're not, you know, just, you know, hammering themselves. They're not being taken care of. They're going to get fired if they uh, hammer themselves. Let's talk to somebody that might know a thing or two about the war on drugs. David Hathaway, uh, the sheriff down in Santa Cruz County in Arizona, who's a former DEA agent turned good guy, turned libertarian. uh, And he's here on the line with us. Go ahead, David. Yeah, good evening, uh, Ian and Jay. Uh, great talking to you guys. I wasn't going to talk about drug stuff, but based on Skeeter's thing, I'd give a little anecdote. I was the uh, office head of a DEA office in Illinois for five years and the office head of a DEA office in Missouri for five years. And we noticed that, um, and the drug dealers noticed, that when the welfare checks came in on the first day of the month, that's when the big shipments would come in because, you know, the uh, – the, uh, the the drug dealers knowing the market yep. know that that's when the demand is because that's what the welfare money was spent on predominantly. But <clears throat> I, what I was calling about was something else. Um, Nikki was talking last night about a ghost town. Um, I can't remember if it was Connecticut or something, and it was kind of like mm-hmm. a clickbaity headline saying 
that um, it was, you know, illegal to go there because it was so scary and spirit filled and all that. Yeah, I think and it was called it Dudley turned, Town or Dudleyville, yeah. Connecticut. Yeah. And then it turned out the truth of the matter was later in the article that there was a conservation easement preventing people from going there. And just to give a little anecdote about that, I own a ghost town in Arizona, and it's the only piece of private land in a in a mountainous area that's uh, everything else is uh, forest service land, mm-hmm. uh, uh, government owned land around it. This piece of land is 62 acres. It's called Sunnyside, Arizona. So if you Google Sunnyside Ghost Town, you'll see a lot of pictures and articles about it. But um, back to this conservation easement thing, I've been approached multiple times by people who have said, look, um, you need to lock your land into a conservation easement, which means you make a deal with the government where your property taxes stay low, but you have to agree to never do any commercial ventures on the land, whether it be livestock or farming or a farmer's market Mm. or to have something like, you know, uh, a freedom fest there or something like that, where you have to agree to never use it for productive commercial purposes. And Mm -hmm. of course, I've refused to do that over and over. But when Nikki was reading that article uh, yesterday, I think it was last night, um, you know, online, it it reminded me of the circumstance that I'm in with with this ghost town that I own where I've turned them down. But multiple times I've been told, look, you need to do this to preserve the environment in that area where there's tens of thousands of acres of federal land. And yours is the only piece of private land surrounded by federal land and to fit with the government's, um, you know, vision for that area. They don't want anything commercial. And it was a mining town. My great grandparents were were miners. They had a gold mine and silver mm-hmm. mine there. And they also had a lumber mill because that, that area of the mountains in Arizona actually has timber. So they would provide the shoring and stuff for the other mines. I have area. to ask, David, why would you want to buy a ghost town? Like, what, what is the uh, the interest? Is it that you're hoping there's still some gold in them there hills? Or, you know? <laughs> no, it's I, I inherited it. My oh. great-grandparents moved from Dodge City, Kansas in the 1800s to mm-hmm. Arizona. Not that many people in Arizona are from Arizona. It's kind of a mm-hmm. transient population. People come here to work for Raytheon in Tucson, which is the biggest employer in Tucson, they come to the universities, they come to the aerospace industry and government agencies like the big border patrol offices. So there's there's very few people that that they go way back. Like actually, mm-hmm. Arizona became a state in 1912. So my family was mm-hmm. here before this was a state where there was no line on the border, where people had ranch property on both sides of the border. So my ancestors came as uh, gold miners, gold and silver miners, hmm. uh, hard rock mining in those mountains. And that's actually what that is. If if you see pictures of that on internet, it was a, a gold mining town. And then it fortunately stayed in the family. Uh, my grandfather inherited it from great grandparents and then my dad and mm-hmm. then me. So um, along with the ranch land, that's just a piece of land I happen to own. Like the buildings have mostly fallen down. There was mm. a schoolhouse there and a post office when I was a kid and multiple other houses. Uh, but nowadays there's only a few a few of the buildings left. left. But you is know, it, it, is it, it something you share... want to sell later on or like why are you holding no, on to it? No, it's just kind of too sentimental. Like ah, we I have see. family reunions there. There's extended extended family that it means a lot to them because okay. they trace their roots back back to their there's these Spanish land grants grants here that we're, we're still honored when Arizona became a state. 
these big Spanish land grants, there was one called the San Rafael de la Zanja land grant. And it was a, a big ranch that had come through different generations into a, a, a current era family. And then what happened, they couldn't afford to pay the inheritance tax. So along comes the Nature Conservancy, which is a quasi-governmental, because the government just can't come in and buy it, because mm -hmm. uh, it was originally homesteaded or attained legally. So there's these quasi-governmental agencies, these NGOs, that use the cover of being kind of private, but they're not really. Um, like the Nature Conservancy came in and they made a deal where, look, you sell this whole thing to us. And then the uh, government agreed to defer uh, the inheritance tax ah. and the family completely lost the ranch, but kept uh, a little portion that they could live on. And then it became Nature Conservancy, which means nobody can use it. It's mm -hmm. the most lush pasture land in this part of the state, wow. but it can't be used. But because in so order shut to it dodge down. the tax they, implications, wow. yeah, they had to put it in one of these conservation shelters. That's just like you said, uh, Jay, you know, it's like, yeah, Agenda 21. So this is effectively of, gobbling up family owned farmland and putting it in corporate hands that are supposedly doing nothing with it, at least for the moment. But at least cutting out these family farms means less competition for the Monsantos of the world. Is that right? Yeah, because there's no way the next generation can inherit it. They can't mm -hmm. afford to inherit it. They wow. can't just shell over, you know, when the person dies, they can't uh, hand over 60% of the value. And just to be to clear, is this an Arizona tax thing, this death tax you're talking no, about? U.S. Oh, it's federal. That, that's federal. Oh, wow. So, yeah. so the, the, this particular inheritance tax only applies to federal U.S. citizens. Only federal U.S. citizens, 14th Amendment citizens, are subject to the income tax. The IRS is very clear about this. Mm. The United States is defined as District of Columbia, territories, and possessions. So by doing, by correcting your status, which, you know, you can go on the internet and internet search, you know, correcting my status as a U.S. versus state citizen. There's a whole bunch of guys offering this service all over the place. And, uh, you know, which is something I, I, I did a long time ago and a lot of my friends have, but basically the, um, you know, a, fe a federal United States citizen is a second class citizen to where a state citizen is a first class citizen and a state citizen is not subject to the, uh, to the IRS stuff. So yeah. when, so I, I sold some land, for example, that I had years ago and, you know, it was land I paid, uh, like 12 hundred dollars for you know I was 18 years old and I sold it basically for like twenty thousand dollars you know I never lived there or anything actually twenty eight thousand dollars I guess is what I sold it for and um and you know so there was like you know I just checked it did the documentation for example that I'm not a you know federal United States citizen and there was no like you know capital gains or any of that stuff mm -hmm. on it and uh so you know, this is another thing where people just, you know, need to correct their citizenship. Because if you are a U.S. citizen and you check off a box on some government application that you're a United States citizen, the government says, oh, you're a 14th Amendment United States citizen that has not rights, but privileges and immunities. And yeah, if I give you another example, it's not related to land, but since I live right here on the border, cars that are registered in Mexico, so they're not U.S. citizens, but they have a visa, 
they mm -hmm. can have all these interesting cars that were made in Russia and Czechoslovakia. They've never met the crash test DOD mm. uh, regulations, but they're very efficient vehicles like the, these 1,000cc minivans that are made by major manufacturers like Toyota and Nissan, but they can't be, they don't met, uh, fit all the uh, DOT guidelines. But if they have a Mexico plate, they can drive across and they mm. can circulate in the U.S. Um, it's kind of an example of that, Jane, uh, Jay, like a non-U.S. citizen meeting the laws of a foreign country, but they have a visa to cross. Now, 60 percent in a state poll have blamed Measure 110 for making drug addiction, homelessness and crime worse, they say. This year's legislative session, which ended in late June, saw at least a dozen Measure 110 related proposals from both Democrats and Republicans ranging from the tech from technical fixes uh, to full restoration of criminal penalties for drug possession to significant changes, tighter restrictions on fentanyl and more state oversight of how Measure 110 funding is distributed passed with bipartisan support. I think we're going to see some hard pendulum swing to the right. That's going to get real authoritarian and what's going to cause that pendulum swing to the right uh, is the, this example, for example, you know, for example, the, well, look what happens when we legal, legalize drugs. We get all these drug encampments. We get all these overdoses. Yeah, but and all the thing this is stuff. the drug encampments are happening outside of, of Oregon, right? Oh, like well, yeah, they're happening in... everywhere. And and the thing is... So that didn't lead to <clears throat> drug encampments. And, and and the thing is, though, but they're not really enforcing, in, in all the blue cities, they're just not really enforcing any of these, uh, even if it is against the law to have these drugs, they're not enforcing it. It's just like, and, and they've they're not enforcing regular even crimes. You're not enforcing shoplifting crimes, mm -hmm. or they're oh, if you steal less than nine hundred bucks, we're not going to you know prosecute you. Well, kind plus of stuff. it's it's either legal or they're not enforcing the encampments, right? right. I mean, right. people yeah. can just set up tents out on Main Street or whatever. Yeah, and so th this is going to be pushed as the example of why we need to have you know hard right enforcement on you know a, a pendulum swing to the right i believe is what's coming around next and that's Very not going to solve any of these problems it it'll push it out of the out of public view yeah i mean you but know that's it well not even out of public view it'll, it'll be like the military on the streets you know mm -hmm. rounding up people and doing whatever with well, them. well the homeless people are going to be somewhere right like if they start rounding up homeless people and put them into the jail they're going to fill the jail real quick so eventually they're going to have to let them out and the prison and industrial complex really loves that well, yeah, I mean, it would give them excuses to to build more prisons, but eventually you might actually get the conservatives mad because they don't want to pay $70,000 a year or whatever it costs in, in your state. It might be as low as 40, but there's different ranges to keep somebody in a prison cell, to give them three hot meals a day and a cot to sleep on. You know, you're basically, you've given the homeless a home and now you're having to pay for it in that particular case. Unless that particular conservative is, you know, getting a kickback from that corporation. If they work that, for the you know, prison industrial complex, or, or, yeah. Or, or just the, the the company that provides the food to the prison. But that's the irony of this, right? Like, on one hand, the conservatives can see the problem of the liberals handing out all these benefits and creating these homeless camps or whatever and, and incentivizing this. On the other hand, if you put the authoritarianism into place, like you're predicting, then that's just doing the same thing, but putting a different uh, shine on it, essentially. The conservatives are saying, quote, we're doing something, but you're just housing the homeless and you're feeding the homeless just like the liberals were. You're just doing it in your conservative camps. Well, the thing is, if you, if you push this thing so hard that where it just all these cities where the welfare epidemic is is fueling the drug e epidemic uh, like Kensington, Philadelphia, Venice Beach, California, you know, just just pick one and then you 
the, then the people in control don't care if it's author- if it's left authoritarian mm-hmm. control or right authoritarian control as long as there's a reason to have an authoritarian control and as long as they can keep on bounce swinging this pendulum left and right to where now n- now it's going to be the right's turn for a while yep. because all the people are sick of all the drug addicts and the drug encampments and you can't walk down in the streets and you know well, even like here in Manchester, New Hampshire, we got some like pretty rough areas. But one thing I could tell you about Manchester is like in a in a couple in a in a couple city block area where a whole bunch of free staters bought houses. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I mentioned this on the you show did, before. Yeah. Um, they they're pretty much cleaned up. You don't see cleaned the drug the addicts place. around there or the street walkers because just, there's a bunch of free staters walking around, open carrying. They don't want that stuff yeah. around. They pick it definitely up, helps you know? to bring better people yeah. in. That's for sure. But it doesn't solve none of these things. Solve the problem, right? The welfare quote-unquote solution makes things worse we've already pointed that out throwing people in a prison cell doesn't work either you pointed out earlier that the guards will just smuggle things in or the prisoners themselves will smuggle it in where the sun don't shine or whatever and you know you can't keep the drugs out of the prisons either then you just have everybody paying the ridiculously inflated prices to keep people in in prison hey daily digestion listeners this is riley blake I enjoy Free Talk Live, and I know you do too, but finding time to listen to an entire episode isn't always easy, so I produce the Daily Digest. I appreciate those of you who have supported me on Patreon and sent Bitcoin to me to thank me for producing these digests. For those who wish to support me on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash crblake86. If you wish to send Bitcoin, visit patreon.com slash crblake86. 86 for those details. That's patreon.com slash crblake86. Thank you. And we actually had Dana uh, from the uh, the drug testing center up in Vancouver on the show, Dana Larson, uh, several weeks ago, who made the point that when you actually have legalization, you see a trend towards lesser strength versions of these things. Like you can get cannabis in so many different forms today that are not as strong. You can still get the strong stuff, but there's a real movement of people that just want to have a, a light dose or they want to get the the THC-8 or you know CBD. Uh, there's so many different things. Uh, you can take it in ways that are less strenuous instead of just smoking it. Now there's edible uh, cannabis as well at various different dosages. You can measure your dosage, which is, of course, as you pointed out with uh, the black market in heroin, you have no idea if there's fentanyl in there. You have no idea what what you're getting from a black market dealer. So you're right. They haven't solved the problem of the drug quality, of the drug consistency, by actually legalizing it and making it available through your local Walgreens. Yeah, like it was 100 years ago. Exactly. Uh, So that's one problem. But what are some of the other problems? Well, it turns out uh, the money is a problem. We were talking, uh, we haven't really gotten into the details on this, but we we were discussing earlier how... Governments, whether they be left authoritarian or right authoritarian governments, these are organizations of people who've sought power, who want to use that power, and the the money that they get to steal from people through taxes or through printing it, they want to use that power and the money to reward their friends in industry, right? Like, so you get contracts for their buddies or their family members, or they hire their, you know, their son's friends or whatever. There's all the nepotism and stuff that goes on. Well, there's money involved in this, too. They mentioned the beginning of the story, hundreds of millions of dollars, they said, that were going to be going to the so-called treatment programs. So instead of funding law enforcement, the idea is to fund treatment programs, which on its face sounds like a better idea, right? Like, because 
we know that law enforcement isn't making anything better. We know that arresting drug users isn't making their lives better. It's likely going to result in them being even more impoverished when they get out of jail, because if they had a job, they probably lost it. If they had an apartment, they probably lost that, too, when they get out of jail for the drug possession. So we know that that way doesn't work. So why wouldn't it make sense to fund the treatment program? So how's that going? That's what they address here uh, in the story. So uh, Tony Morse, who's from Oregon Recovers, who initially opposed the measure but now supports funding the policy, says, quote, if you take away the criminal justice system as a pathway that gets people into treatment, you need to think about what's going to replace it. And I think that I mentioned before, that is part of the problem here, the central concept of uh, managing things from a central location of, of government, central planners saying, well, now that we've done, the law enforcement isn't there, we need to have a government treatment program or we need to have a government way of funding all these other private clinics or whatever it is that, uh, that are going to be popping up. And what I think should be happening is we should just let the market handle this instead of having to take in hundreds of millions of dollars in cannabis taxes abolish the cannabis tax let people buy cannabis at the price that cannabis should be sold without Regulate all the taxes. It like tomatoes right and then let them donate money to the organizations that the individuals believe is helping because you know that the money that's going to be coming out of this fund the treatment programs is going to be going to their buddies it's going to be going to their buddies who are then running these treatment programs, which may or may not be doing things like you talked about before, you know, paying $7,000 a head to take over a hotel and house a bunch of homeless people there for the rest of their lives. So the thing with these treatment uh, programs, so the methadone clinics, <clears throat> so I have uh, uh, someone who's ba- almost a relative that you know was in the methadone clinic for a while. Mm-hmm. Actually, I have two people that are basically relatives that were on the methadone clinic. And I'm like, so when do you get off methadone? And you're like, oh, you don't. Oh, wow. And I'm like, what? So basically the idea, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but what I understand is there is no getting off of methadone. The idea, the guy, so I had this conversation with two people about the same, one was a woman, um, and she's like, oh, there's, you know, methadone's like you just, it's a maintenance thing and there's no, and, and she's like, I'll ask, what? you know, what, you know, what the, what, what the, um, you know, the, what's the end game here, you know? So, so the, the, the woman I was don't like, believe it. was like, well, no, they don't, there is no end game to get off methadone. You're basically on methadone for the rest of your life. Um, and it's just, you know, a thing. So you don't have the withdrawals and, you know, you're not uncomfortable and, you know, and, you know, I guess detoxing from heroin is like really horrible and the other guy uh i've heard i've heard and I, you know it's just what i've heard and i'm looking into it right now but i've heard that it you're looking at at least a six month uh tapering down if you're going to do it it takes a long time maybe it's six years i don't know i remember hearing a large number uh to get off of methadone get off of heroin that sort of thing but it can be done and in my opinion it absolutely should be done right so i know people who have done it they've okay. they've gotten themselves weaned off it so one guy but the pharmaceutical industry obviously wants you to be on it for the rest of your life right, right? and and they want a dependency class too that's the other thing too is these people are going to vote to get their methadone they're going to you know vote mm-hmm. to make sure that they got their welfare check for their heroin caller you're on free talk live who is this hey this is rusty rusty are you in portland oregon or nearby Yes, I am. All right. Welcome. Yeah. Uh, you've been there in the midst of this drug decriminalization. Uh, what do you have to say about it? Well, 
Oregon deserves some props, first of all, for being ahead of the class in body freedom. I mean, no other state has pulled this off, and it makes it a very libertarian place despite its liberalness. Mm. But it's been kind of crazy here because people are very scared of, like, fentanyl, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you got mass disinformation like you got these videos of EMTs and first responders like having panic attacks and thinking they're overdosing if they're just in the same room as the stuff. That's weird. Why and would they think that? Because in like 2016, the DEA put out some false information saying like you could overdose from fentanyl just like by skin contact and stuff. Yeah, that sounds like and, total nonsense. So that yeah. is that is nonsense, caller. Oh, yeah. Okay. I don't even see and, why an EMT would even believe that. Well, I mean, right. we have a, a pediatrician in, uh, you know, Concord, New Hampshire that, you know, has D DCYF going to try to take J.R. Hole's children because J.R. Hole gave him some ivermectin and his pediatrician believed that iver ivermectin was so dangerous that wow. a guy's children should be taken away That's from crazy. him. So you have a bunch of brain dead idiots, you know, in these positions of authority and power. What do you think, Rusty? Uh, you know, is the are these people these critics of the drug decriminalization claiming it's making things worse? Are they are they onto something, or is that total BS? Yeah, I just I just think the timing made it okay. The fentanyl crisis hit around the same time, mm -hmm. or a few years before, right? Yep. This was going to happen anyways. There was going to be fentanyl all over the city anyways. Mm -hmm. But people they were trying to pass. Because of the open-air drug use, they were trying to pass some bill in Portland alone to criminalize open-air drug use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they mentioned that here. Now, instead, a bill passed just recently that recriminalizes fentanyl above a gram. And so the mayor of Portland was like, well, that's good enough. I'm not going to do the open-air drug use criminalization thing. Mm -hmm. so, so hold on a second. Um. A gram of fentanyl. That's so, a lot, right? Well, I used to, so there's a drug that we used to give horses that was, you crush it up into a powder and mix it in their grain. Mm -hmm. And one gram of that would, you know, that's quite a bit. Like you would give yeah, like that... one gram of this butte to like an 1100 pound horse. Yeah. As I understand it, fentanyl, you don't need a lot to get the desired effects, right? But a gram would right, like the... fill up like three thimbles, right? Or something or two. I don't know about that. Of, of of this stuff it would, but I don't know if yeah. it's the same thing is. But that That's sounds how this bill is going to kill people because it's okay. It says either you can have if you have five grams or more, it's a felony, right? Or twenty five user units. So if you just have twenty five pills or more of the blues, then you're going to get a felony. But you can have up to five grams of the powder fentanyl. Which is way more fentanyl that's in that is in twenty five user units or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's going to incentivize people to use the powder fentanyl, which is injectable, whereas the blues that are going around right now that everybody's doing is not really injectable. What's a and blue? Like a pill. A blue is a little pill. It looks like a, it's like a fake oxy or something. That's just fentanyl. That's what everybody's smoking is these blues. What Rusty pointed out a moment ago in Portland, he's in the thick of it there, he says he thinks that it was bad timing because some of the numbers have gone up. Some of the addiction, uh, you know, death numbers, that sort of thing, have gone up. He said that probably would have happened anyway because the fentanyl use was on the rise. 
And decriminalization isn't necessarily going to stop people from using drugs, although we had seen numbers in Portugal for the last two decades that suggested uh, that uh, almost immediately there were fewer people with problems with addiction, more people were seeking treatment, that sort of thing. So they're saying that they think that the answer is to put more money from the government into treatment. And I think one of the problems with that, first of all, they're, they've absolutely failed, apparently, at handling the money. They get into that later on in this in this story. As always, every yeah. government project. Right. Um, but you know what they're going to do is they're going to give money to buddies of the people in the government. And that's going to be incredibly wasteful. Because whenever, whenever you're spending other people's money... Even if you aren't corrupted, which of course it will tend to do anyway, but even if you aren't a corrupted individual, you will still be better or you're going to be better at spending your own money. You're going to be more judicious with it. You're going to be more choosy about how you spend that money. Whereas if it's somebody else's money and there's no real, you know, accountability for it, maybe you're not going to pay as much attention. Maybe you're not going to be as concerned. We see that all the time with uh, with government handouts. It's not being done effectively. That's why government welfare is doing such a piss-poor job, and private charities like the Salvation Army, for instance, can actually do a much better job at helping people for a fraction of the price. A little uh, uh, explanation uh, about this, how wasteful government is. So in 2007, or 2008 campaign year, we uh, hosted what was called the, uh, we did a thing called the Massachusetts Liberty Riders. So my dad, and I, we would go load up a, ho- a trailer full of horses and go to these parades and put any Liberty candidate on a horse. And we would end up um, uh, <clears throat> riding them through whatever. But there was this one guy, his name was Cummel Jane. He was a second generation or first generation, uh, second generation Indian fella. He was an accounting guy. He was... Um, uh, he worked in the some accounting department for the state hmm. and he one of the things he did is he had like sort of like um, interns that were from like colleges that he could you know have them work on assignments so one of the things they did is they calculated that uh, how much did it cost for every one dollar of welfare that a welfare recipient got how much did it cost the how many dollars did they have to pay to, to give one dollar out to it somebody? Was 42, I was gonna $42. Guess, ah, okay. I was going to I was going to guess low. I was thinking like eight or ten or something for, like that. For every wow. one dollar a welfare recipient received in welfare. <laughs> um, this is it, state welfare. Yep, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, it was it cost taxpayer forty two dollars. And this guy was running for, I believe, state auditor. And he actually worked Amazing. in the auditor's office. That's what it was. Auditor. And he was running for. So this is one of his campaign things mm-hmm. was like. Nobody's talking about this, and mm. you know it's 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 and and you know it's just forty. I mean that's why taxes. That's forty two dollars yep. going to the bureaucrats, going yep. to their buddies, going to the contractors, right? Yep. So yep. you, know, you get a family that's getting twelve hundred dollars ridiculous in, in in these assistance, and uh, and it's costing you know the tax slaves like fifty you know fifty grand a month to give these people twelve hundred dollars a month. <laughs> it's crazy. It is insane. Uh, and and that is something that absolutely needs to end. So that same thing you're talking about there, Jay, with the ridiculous ratio of spending, is going to go on with this treatment money, the millions of or dozens or hundreds of millions of dollars that they have from the cannabis taxes that they're going to be doling out to these treatment centers. Yep. It's going to be the exact same thing, where they're spending 20, 30 times as much as they really need to spend. So they're not going to be giving people the help uh, that they need to, like an efficient organization that actually has to 
earn its money. That's the difference, right? Like a, a private charity that isn't on the government dole has to earn your support. They have to show you that they're actually helping people. They have to show you that they're doing it affordably, that they're spending. I, I, the typical sh- uh, target is like, you know, it, it's a 90% uh, of any organization. It's a private charity. If you can get that 90% of the don- donations going to the actual purpose of the charity instead of paying overhead, you're a really good charity. That's like, that's what you want to shoot for. So and a lot of them do. A lot of them make that. The state does two things. They do what's called deficit spending to where they essentially borrow money that's created out of thin air. Mm-hmm. And then they point guns at people to force them to pay taxes. They do. Uh, so many advocates, according to the Atlantic story here on drug decrim in Oregon, say the new policy simply needs more time to prove itself. Even if they also acknowledge that parts of the ballot measure had flaws, advocates worked closely with lawmakers on an oversight bill that passed last month. Quote, we're building the plane as we fly it, said a program supervisor at a homeless services provider in Portland who helped put the measure on the ballot. Haven Wheelock said further, we tried the war on drugs for 50 years and it didn't work. It hurts my heart every time someone says we need to repeal this before we even give it a chance. Now, the good news is it has not been repealed. I don't know if that's going to pass. Hopefully it doesn't, because I do agree that as flawed as this is, it is still a step in the right direction. They say here that Measure 110 went into effect at a time of dramatic change in U.S. drug policy. Departing from precedent, the Biden administration has endorsed an increased federal funding for a public health strategy called harm reduction. Rather than pushing for abstinence, harm reduction emphasizes keeping drug users safe. So they say backers of Measure 110 said the law was modeled on drug policies in Portugal where personal drug possession was decriminalized two decades ago. But Oregon's enforcement and treatment referral system differs from Portugal. Users caught with drugs in Portugal are referred to a civil commission that evaluates their drug use and recommends treatment if needed, with civil sanctions for noncompliance. So it's not like they just cut you you know, loose and let you walk away. There's still a system there. Portugal's state-run health system also funds a nationwide network of treatment services, many of which focus on sobriety. Sutton says drafters of Measure 110 wanted to avoid anything that might resemble a criminal tribunal or coercing drug users into treatment. Quote, people respond best when they're ready to access those services services in a voluntary way and i totally agree with him this is the director of external relations for the drug policy alliance uh, I, who they're interviewing here i think if you're pretty comfortable getting your uh getting your disability check and smoking your crack like my uncle did until the day he died mm-hmm. um you're not interested in any treatment no but should you be forced into it uh well i don't think you should be forced into it but you know, if you are if 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 you're committing crimes, if you're stealing from people and mm-hmm. stuff like that, I mean something something <laughs> is so he was stealing things from you know literally my grandmother, family you know, members, my entire life. Mm-hmm. Oh, and other random people, mm-hmm. and like he actually, you like um, <laughs> I w- I went into a Walmart with him about eight years ago in Cobaskill, New York. I had picked him up for something to help me out, and and uh, he. Uh, security walks right up to us and says 
you can't be in this Walmart. <laughs> and and uh, what? It, wow. And the security guy let me. You know, he's fine with me, but they just escorted him right out of the store. And uh, he's like, "Hey, can I have the key to the truck?" I'm like, "No, no. I'll, I'll be I'll be back there." <laughs> Go pawn the truck. <laughs> well, whatever. Right? You know, yeah. it's, it's some tools or something. But uh, so Jeez. so uh, the security guy goes, "Oh yeah, we have um you know facial recognition software, really? and we were alerted as soon as you guys were in the parking Whoa. lot, and basically we were like you know that's awesome twenty feet in the door." And well, you look at a Walmart; it's it, it's like a prison or, or or a casino with all the yeah, cameras yeah, they have. You have a lot of cameras, there. but uh, you know, this that's was, impressive. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was upstate New York, like eight or ten mm-hmm. years ago, and they're like, "Yeah, facial recognition," and we were alerted. And basically, I was at the back of the store. The guy says, and it took me from here to get to you. Yep, to I'm fine with that. By the way, I, I don't care if a private company wants to use that technology. Yeah, yeah that, I that, think that makes sense, and, and that works good because he had stolen so much stuff from him right. over the years, and and uh, he's a liability. And, he's a and, walking liability. And he, and and any Walmart he goes to in the country, he just can't go into oh, it. Oh, that's really cool. Uh, from yeah, what I understand. Makes sense. Uh, people respond, he says, when they're ready to access the services in a voluntary way. And I, I totally agree with that. Um, almost immediately after taking effect, Measure 110 encountered problems. A state audit published this year found the new law was vague about how state officials should oversee the awarding of money to the new treatment programs. Of course. It set unrealistic timelines for evaluating and funding those treatment proposals. And as a result, the funding process was left largely to the grant-making panel, most of whose members, quote, lacked experience in designing, evaluating, and administrating a governmental grant application process. So there's all this bureaucracy around this money. They got all this money. They want to give it out, supposedly, but good luck getting to it. Good luck getting through the mountain of paperwork that you would need to get this funding. Whereas, again, if we just simply allowed the market to work, allowed people to keep the money that they earn in the first place and donate it to the organizations doing the good work, this would be solved instantaneously. I mean, that's not, not all problems will be solved, but the, 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 the problem of distribution of resources will be solved by those who are most efficient at doing that. They will be the ones that rise to the top. They will be the ones with the success stories. Like here in town in, in Keene, there's a homeless shelter that is privately run. And they've been around now for more than, I don't know, f- roughly 15 years. And they do this. I mean, they do take a little bit of money from the from the city, but it's by no means a, you know, a huge chunk of their budget. So they do this on largely donations from people because they can point to the success stories that they've had helping people who are homeless actually get into housing. You just heard highlights from the latest episode of Free Talk Live. You can download full episodes Subscribe to our podcast, listen live, and more, all for free at freetalklive.com.